Listening to the Pre-Med Perspectives Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Pre-Med Perspectives. Uh, it's Vigi here today. And I'm really, really excited to be speaking with a really awesome guest. Um, it's probably the coolest guest I've ever had the experience of talking to. Um, I am with the president of Michigan State University, uh, Dr. Stanley. And so um, today we're really going to find out more about how you know he started as a physician and has really um, you know moved throughout his career to now be the president of such a large university. So with that, um, Dr. Stanley, go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, Vigi, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. And uh, I am Sam Stanley and uh, do have the privilege of being the 21st president of Michigan State University, um, but began my career, of course, in medicine. And I'm happy to talk today about, you know, how I reached this and uh, the somewhat circuitous route I took to becoming a university president. Yeah, so I really kind of want to start a little bit earlier in your career and kind of ask you, you know, first, how did you get you know, first exposure to the field of medicine, you know, why was that the initial career that you chose? You know, talk a little bit about, you know, where'd you go to med school, residency, kind of that early part of your career. So sure. So, uh, you know, it's hard to know where the interest in medicine came. And when I was in, you know, I, I, I told this story when I was asked about why did you, you know, want to become a physician? And someone asked me, was that because there's a number of physicians in your family? And this was in an interview setting. I said, no, it's because I come from a long line of patients. And um, they thought that was funny, and, uh, and, 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 but it was true. Um, there'd been no doctors in my family. But when I was in college, I think I, I thought that I wanted to do something, and it, it sounds corny a little bit, I guess, but you know, that would help people. I was interested in a career that would allow me to help people. And I thought there were two things that, that made sense from that. And my dad had been a cultural anthropologist, so I kind of had an interest in people and, and you know, how, how, how societies uh, uh, pr progress and what's important to help societies progress in, in a good way. And I think that, you know, I thought a little bit about the law um, because I found it interesting, but I also thought about medicine as well. And I wasn't sure which of those to do. I'd done some research as a high school student um, you know, involved in the science club and doing research there. You're getting a feel for me in high school now by, by me talking about that. But I'd done some of that as well. So I had a kind of an interest in the life sciences. I thought that was very interesting, but I also said thought the law was interesting too. Um, so I finally made a decision um, and it was at the time when I had to choose whether to take both the MCATs and the LSAT. And when I decided I didn't want to take two of those the tests, um, I decided to take the MCAT. So that kind of cast my, uh, my, my decision. Um, but I'd actually been leaning that way anyway. And in, in college, I had done primarily a, a pre-med uh, tract and actually had taken some graduate courses uh, in anatomy uh, because I thought about I might become a surgeon at some point in time as well. So I became interested in anatomy. So I took some graduate courses in anatomy when I was in Chicago too, particularly neuroanatomy. So I was actually thinking of becoming a neurosurgeon, I think even at that time. So um, I did end up getting into medical school and I ended up accepted at Harvard, which was you know pretty surprising to me. Um, I'm still not exactly sure how that happened, but it was, uh, it was, it was, if it was an error, it certainly worked in my benefit. 
Um, and I enjoyed my time there. I found that I, I honestly probably worked harder as an undergraduate at University of Chicago than I did in medical school at Harvard. Um, and I think that was, you know, th there was a very competitive pre-med environment at Chicago. Um, and I think I probably spent more time studying there than I did uh, at medical school. I felt medical school was a little more relaxing. Um, but I did enjoy it tremendously um, and I met a number of really interesting people. We had a very interesting class there and I was, you know, we had an Olympic skater, uh, an Olympic diver. Um, so people with a number of different backgrounds. And so it was really fun. And um, when I decided to do residency, um, it was an interesting decision. First of all, I had the opportunity to do MD-PhD, I should say that. So I was offered both the slot uh, in the MD program and also in what they called the HST program, the Health Science Technology program then, which was a, a partnership between MIT and, and Harvard. So I had the option of doing that, but I decided I just was going to do the MD and not do a PhD as well. Um, and part of it was just a time commitment as I looked at seven years versus four years, I wanted to really get started uh, you know, ahead of that. So anyway, so I did, did work. And then when it came to pick you know, what I was going to do as a, as a specialty um, after medicine, I, I decided on internal medicine. I gave up this dream of becoming a neurosurgeon when I realized I had lots of trouble tying knots. Um, and I realized that my manual dexterity was such that, you know, my hand fine motor coordination was such that I would probably never be a great surgeon. I might be an okay surgeon if I worked really hard, but I would never be a great surgeon. And so I decided to go into internal medicine and I picked infectious diseases eventually as a specialty because for two reasons. One, I lived in Indonesia for a few years when I was a kid. And I remember malaria, and I remember people talking about the number of tropical diseases that were there, and that kind of raised an interest in me. And you know, one of the reasons I was interested in the life sciences early on was because of that. So ID was interesting from that point of view for me. Really, it was an international and global problem. And the second thing was, I thought there was always something new in ID. That if you learned cardiology, you know, and, and cardiology was really, I thought, very cool. But if you learn cardiology, um, you probably at some point could say you almost mastered it, right? That you knew all about congenital heart disease or all about, you know, coronary artery disease, that there'd be a point in time when there wasn't a lot of new things happening. And with ID, there's a lot of new things that can happen. And so, and we've seen this, right? Obviously we're dealing with COVID right now. This is another new pandemic. So there's always some new challenge. And I figured I would never master it, that it would always be something new to learn. So I'll stop there. And uh, that's uh, that was kind of my early days and uh, what got me interested in medicine and uh, residency at Mass General and, uh, which, and then an ID fellowship at Washington St. Louis. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you so much for kind of um, walking us through that. I think it's actually surprising the number of people who are, you know, debating between pre-med and pre-law. There's actually, um, you know, many of my friends who've switched between the two as well. So it's interesting to know that um, many other people are also in that boat. And my dad is actually an infectious disease um, physician as well. So I think he would really resonate with what you had to say about um, ID always being something new. He always likes the intellectual challenge as well. Um, real quick, kind of looking back on that, what would you say was the most challenging part of that experience? Like all of your training, going to schooling, you know, what, what was most challenging for you and how were you able to overcome that? So I think third and fourth year of medical school were pretty challenging. So for, for those of you going through it now, probably can relate. Um, I think I wished at that point in time, remember I said, I thought I worked harder at University of Chicago than I did at Harvard. I, I kind of wished 
after and when I was in year three that I maybe worked a little harder in year one and two because I think some of the things I had to relearn um, because I hadn't paid enough attention in class maybe for those first two years and so I found myself a little challenged and you know it's just amazing to be in that clinical realm and learning but the hours were really demanding this is before some of the changes had been made to make these programs more humane and you know just to to keep up with the interns and residents there and to be a helpful part of a team when your knowledge base is still growing was really challenging and so i think that was a very challenging time and then i think you know just being an intern or a junior resident um, was a lot of work. Being a junior resident was incredibly rewarding, but the way the, the Mass General Hospital was organized was you had tremendous responsibility. So you had, it was the teams were a junior resident and two interns, so a three-person team. So, you, so each of you were on one of those three nights, so you were on every third night. And so that was grueling um, to be, you know, to have, be up all night, basically, one night. But when you're the junior resident, if your intern, you know, still needed a lot of help. And I started, you know, I happened to start my team July 1. So I was one of the, you know, residents picked to start July 1, which means the interns are really coming in, as you know, just after their fourth year of medical school. So they really, you know, are learning very quickly. So you might be up two nights because you had to stay up all night with an intern who might be having more trouble. So you, you didn't want to leave the hospital if you thought there were patients that were challenged. And so, so I remember that as being very demanding in terms of physically demanding in terms of, you know, not getting enough sleep and, you know, uh, really uh, being on the go for hours and hours, but it was incredibly rewarding. So I look back, it's amazing that you could look back at a time that was maybe, you know, maybe more stressful and more involved more sleep deprivation than is probably good. Um, and yet you learned a lot during that time. And I, I don't look upon it in a negative way. But I think that was challenging to kind of do your best and, and, and make sure you were doing good patient care. Uh, in, in that those moments. Um, beyond that, though, um, I think everything has been interesting. So there's nothing I've done. I think the great thing about this career is there's nothing I've done that wasn't interesting. So I've never had a time when, you know, I came in and said, oh, you know, how dull this is, and you know, how repetitious it is. Um, you know, the early part of my career when I was doing teaching uh, seeing patients and doing research was very interesting. The later part of my career when I've been in administration has also been interesting, I'm sure we'll talk about, but there, there's never been boring moments in this. And so I think that's that's something I think all of us, I think hope for is that we'll find what we do interesting and, and, and personally rewarding. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure there are a lot of people in that third, fourth intern year who are kind of struggling to get through that physical challenge. So it's always you know good to know that there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Something I always found ironic was how much in, you know, as a pre-med in medical school, you learn how important sleep is, yet physicians are often the people getting the least amount of sleep. But um, kind of, um, I know you touched a little bit about, you know, early in your career, you were, you know, doing research, teaching, and seeing patients. Kind of walk us through, you know, how after fellowship, you know, what were you doing? Were you always kind of in that teaching position? Is that something you're always interested in? Kind of walk us through now your early career post-training. Yeah, so those are those are interesting times. Um, so, um, and I think I think about it both in in terms of what I was doing, but always, you know, at, at that point in time uh, when I in my junior year, um, uh, I, I uh, became engaged and then married. Um, and so Ellen Lee, um, MD, PhD, um, who, uh, as I mentioned, you know, has, had, or I may have mentioned her before um, to the campus, but I think, you know, hopefully people have had a chance to meet her. 
Um, but she was, uh, had gone to Stanford at age 16. So she um, completed Stanford and then went to WashU uh, School of Medicine uh, in St. Louis and did an MD PhD. So she and I actually ended up being interns together at the same time, even though we're the same age, but she had an MD PhD to join with and I just had my MD. So, so I, I never forget that. So she, so, so she and I, I think when we finished our, our so we each did fellowships, right? When we finished residence training, we each did fellowships. We decided to come to Washington and St. Louis to do them because it was a very it was an outstanding medical school. As I mentioned, it's where Ellen had gotten her MD and PhD. So she had a number of connections there, but it also had a tradition of really promoting from within. So it was a place where, you know, if you did a great job uh, in your fellowship, um, there was a strong possibility that you would get an offer for a faculty position when you finished. So that was really important to us. And so we moved to St. Louis and uh, she did a GI fellowship. I did an ID fellowship. Um, so first year was clinical. Next year, as you go into the laboratory. So I went into the laboratory. So I remember I decided not to do a PhD, but I ended up doing lab work anyway. Um, and Ellen was helpful to me because, because she had her doctorate. She knew more about you know, lab work. So we would be able to talk about my work and she would give me good suggestions. But I worked in the lab of Joe Davey, who was the chair of uh, pathology and immunology. And I began, a, you know, a research program based on host defense and, 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 and the role of antibodies, particularly in defense against disease, and also their role in sometimes causing disease. And so that was what was going on in the Davy lab. And I spent several years there. And then Joe um, got a very good uh, offer to become a head of research um, for Searle, which was a, a pharmaceutical company, which GD Searle, which no longer exists because it was swallowed up by other companies. But he got the op opportunity to do that. And um, so eventually um, I finished my fellowship and I had the opportunity to become appointed an assistant professor and I was appointed an assistant professor at WashU. And I was very helped by the fact that I inherited Dr. Davies uh, grant. So he had a pretty significant NIH grant. I was already doing some of the work on it. The NIH was nice enough to let me continue that. So I did this difficult transition. If you're going into academic medicine, the biggest hurdle you face often is your first NIH grant, right? So if you're going into academia, so that I was able to have that uh, and that really helped me in my career moving forward. I was doing teaching always as, a, as an intern, as a junior resident, as a fellow. Um, I taught medical students, I really enjoyed it. Um, I remembered um, what I liked about people who taught and what I didn't like about people who taught. I like people who ask questions, but not people who embarrassed people by asking questions. And so finding ways to do that and gently help people learn. Um, and what I would often do was I would ask a question to the student, um, the one they could be answered, but if they couldn't answer, that was okay. Um, and I would explain, you know, I, there's no reason why you should know that. That was one of my favorite phrases. There's no reason why you should know this, but, you know, because it's pretty esoteric, but, you know, just anyway. And then I would, you know, ask the interns questions. Um, but then almost never the junior residents questions, um, you know, and, but, but, you know, but I always, again, wanted to do it in a way that there were questions that I thought were answerable. And if not, we'd figure out the answer to them together, but never to embarrass people. Um, I, you know, I remember faculty uh, in medical school whose goal was to kind of you know, embarrass you or make you feel as though you didn't know anything. And I didn't want to be that teacher. I have one quick anecdote. I was sitting in a class one day, you know, talking about sleep deprivation. And it was a, uh, it was, I was a third year student, I think, and we were having a, getting a lecture from somebody and I was falling asleep in the first row, um, which is a really bad thing to do, um, but it was because I was exhausted. 
what I happened to be at one point in time when I was awake, they happened to be making a point, but I had my eyes closed, but I was awake. And so they made a point and the person then said, you know, Mr. Stanley in the first row, um, you know, what, what your, you know, what do you think about this? And, you know, with my eyes closed, I answered the question. So, so just to show them that I was awake and around, but I think they just asked that just because they thought I was completely asleep. Um, so I think that was really important. And I, I really enjoyed the, you know, opportunity to, you know, help uh, students uh, in, in ways that, again, I may not have been helped myself. So I took a lot of pride in, in my teaching uh, and a lot of time, my opportunity to teach both internal medicine and infectious disease. So I was attending, so either as a fellow and then as an attending, I did both those things, basically, not just the specialty, but internal medicine as well. And so that was that part. Um, I gave lectures and things related. As I became a young faculty member, I gave lectures and things related to infectious disease, most international things, because that was some of my work involved uh, pathogens that are found more overseas than they are in the United States. And so I became kind of an expert in international and global disease. And uh, it was incredibly rewarding. And during that time, we had time to have a family as well. So we had uh, four children um, while we were in St. Louis and uh, that occupied a lot of my time. Um, so it, um, and most rewarding thing that I've ever done probably been engaged in. So that was Ellen and I really, in order to make our careers work, really had to be very uh, uh, intentional about you know decisions we made. And one of the decisions we made was that we would not attend a lot of the meetings that were available in conferences. Um, that can have an impact on your career, but anytime one of us left, the other had a lot on their hands with, you know, four children and, and three of them had come, you know, within each within two years of each other. So that was, that was a challenge and a, a really fun time, enjoyable time, but also a challenging time as well. Yeah, I'm sure with um, four children, plus your wife, who was also so accomplished too, um, must have definitely been um, a bit of a balancing act to do all of that, but that's really um, amazing and inspirational that you were able to do all of that. Um, Hi everyone, this is Lassia, and I hope you're enjoying the episode thus far. I'm chiming in to bring you our MCAT moment sponsored by Pillar Prep Test Prep, the home of empowered MCAT test retakers. This week's tip pertains to the car section on the MCAT. This dreaded section is so tough because no one method works for everyone, so it's important to find what method works for you. It's helpful to know if you need longer to read the passage or answer the questions, and this can be done through taking multiple timed passages. There's a lot of different free sources for CARS passages, so it's helpful to find those such as Jack Weston. After figuring that out, you're able to roughly divide your time for every passage, and you know that I can spend X amount of time reading, roughly, X amount of time answering questions, roughly, so you're able to keep track of the time and not scramble to finish at the end, and it's important that you practice this method before test day. To know more about how your retake can be improved, visit www.pillartestprep.com forward slash the dash retaker dash course to learn more helpful tips about the MCAT and use code all caps pre-med perspective for 20% off the course. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Now, um, I guess my question is, how did that lead you to being president of MSU uh, today? So I'm sure there was a few different hoops that you had to go through before you got here, but I'd, I'd love to know, you know, how does one transition from, you know, being a professor at a medical school to now being a president of a different university? 
So it's a great question. And um, it, it, it's, all of my answers have been long today, and, and but I'll try to make this one a little shorter. Um, the, the key thing was that um, I got experience um, in two areas. One was I got a very large grant from the federal government um, for biodefense and emerging infectious disease. And it required me to set up a center that would be involved in education, uh, in research, uh, and in clinical delivery. And it was ha have to be across multiple institutions. So it was Midwest Regional Center. So multiple institutions, multiple states. And it was a big grant. So one of the largest grants that the NIH had ever administered. And so there were seven of these centers set up around the country. And I was leading the one in the Midwest region. And so that really gave me kind of a crash course in administration. Um, I had to, you know, recruit people to help with this, get go to other centers and recruit people. I had to develop work to help develop, you know, what were we going to do in, in the education side, what were we in training, because that was an important part of this, what were we going to do on the research side, what grants were. And I really had to evaluate people's proposals and programs. So I had to spend a lot of time looking at programs and proposals. I've been on study section to in NIH to review grants. So I had some experience in this, but this was a really different way. And I had to hire people to help run this center. So there were positions available for the center as well and had to hire people. So I'd run a lab. So I had some experience running things, but on a much smaller scale than this. And so I think that taught me some basic things about administration, working more with people, um, for, you know, working to inspire people to do things and get things done, held people accountable for the work they were doing, I think on a much larger scale than I'd done before. And by doing that, I was positioned then when the job became available as vice chancellor for research at Washington University, um, I was encouraged to apply for it. So I applied for it and got that job. And then I was right in the middle of the administration. So for the first time I was in the middle of the administration and I had a very talented deputy. Uh, she'd been there for my predecessor. She was incredibly smart. Um, she was very uh, good. And she and I got together and really said, we're going to change this office. We're going to prove it in these ways. And that really, again, I learned from her a lot about how you move a large organization. So we had all the animal facilities under us uh, and uh, things related to environmental health and safety. It was a big portfolio, essentially, and a big job. So that really, I think, prepared me then to, to become, uh, if, if not a president, at least, to, to be a major administrator. And, and you know, I did that job for four years at WashU. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I met colleagues from around the country. Um, and I, you know, got some visibility um, because of the work we were doing there. And so uh, Stony Brook University in New York was looking for a president. Um, their search firm called me and said, would you be interested in looking at presidency of Stony Brook University? So I knew about Stony Brook. I'd mentioned my dad was a cultural anthropologist. He, I remember he and I talking about the anthropology department at Stony Brook because I hadn't heard of the university before that. And I said, to myself, why are they calling me exactly? Um, I wasn't sure because you know, I'd never thought about being a university president, never crossed my mind ever. And I thought might maybe someday as a Dean of a medical school, I thought that might be a goal to, to try and achieve. Only after I took the BPR job did I think about that. Before that, I really, again, was mostly focused on doing my job as a faculty member. Um, so so they, I talked to Ellen. I said, you know, I, I might, this might be interesting. I've never thought about doing this. It might be interesting. I learned a fair amount about the university as vice chancellor for research. That helped me learn a lot more about the total university, not just the medical school. So I felt I had some of the knowledge, but I knew there was a lot of gaps. Um, but I said, well, I'm not going to, you know, be the one who rejects me myself. Um, you know, I won't, you know, you know, end this by just, you know, not doing it. So Ellen said, yeah, go ahead and do it. 
I think she felt the probability of this happening was very low. Um, so did I. Um, I interviewed and met the people there, very excited by what their goals were. They felt that growing their biomedical research was an important component of what they were looking for. And so it turned out to be a good fit. And so I got the job and, you know, did it for 10 years and then uh, came to Michigan State. Okay, so that's, um, I can see kind of where that path led, you know, first starting, you know, with that large research grant that you were um, kind of in charge of, then moving to that vice chancellor of research position, then president of Stony Brook, and then now um, president of MSU. So um, with that, I know we're running a little short on time, but what I wanted to ask you is, you know, what does a university president do? Um, and, you know, what is your favorite part of your job now? So let me ask you, answer the last part first. And the favorite part is always doing what you and I are doing right now. And that's getting to know students. And um, uh, that's been great. Um, I, I didn't, in medical school, I had a chance obviously to interface with medical students. I had graduate students in my laboratory, um, some medical students as well, but it's really small scale. And the opportunity to kind of meet students and talk with them and really see you know, the, the power of what we do at a university. I mean, it's nice to have a job where you can go out and see the impact of what you're doing every day. And of course, the biggest celebratory day is commencement. So when I get to see you know, thousands of individuals you know, receiving their MSU degree uh, and know that I had some small part in making that possible, um, that's incredible. And so that's really rewarding. So spending time with students, talking with students, uh, and Jesslyn, my executive assistant, would tell you that, you know, there are times when I say, you know, do, don't I have any events with students uh, coming up? Is there anything coming up this week, you know, where I can talk? And so just at ASMSU, we had a great vigorous discussion. You know, you know, people were so smart. They're so dedicated. They're accomplishing so much. I, I look at people's resumes as students and what they are now compared to me. And uh, I'm, I'm amazed that I, that I got anywhere that I got, actually, given how much people do nowadays. And I saw that with my daughters and my sons as well. So, so that's, I think, the biggest part of it. And what a university president does is you work to, with others to set a strategic vision for the university. So the board of trustees, the uh, senior leadership, faculty, staff are all inclusive in creating a strategic vision for the university. And your job is really to help implement that strategic vision. So that means helping to obtain the resources to do it. So that involves, you know, you know, making decisions about tuition, making decisions about, you know, how we get more state allocation and working towards that. Uh, that's about philanthropy. So raising money, that's a big part of my job is to raise money for the university because um, that's critical. That's called the margin of excellence for Michigan State. That's a big part. So all these things are things that I do. Uh, and then responsibility for the safety, of course, on campus. And that's been, you know, an important issue when we've had COVID to figure out how to manage that most effectively and balance the, you know, the wants and needs of students and faculty and staff uh, in ways that allow us to perform these incredible duties we have of education and innovative research. Uh, in the setting of the pandemic and how you do that as safely as you can. So that's been a big part of it too. So, so those are really the main things I see. Um, we have these incredible, edu incredible education and teaching and learning. We have an incredible mission rather in teaching and learning, an incredible mission in research and innovation. And then particularly for Michigan State, we have this extraordinary outreach that comes from our extension work and the work we're doing in places like Flint, uh, Grand Rapids, uh, and we're expanding to Southeast Michigan with uh, Henry Ford. So there's lots of opportunities there too. So, so my job is to really help coordinate all those activities, keep people safe and keep this an inclusive campus and one that people want to be at and succeed at. Okay, yeah, that is really, you know, interesting. There's a lot of different things that, you know, you are involved with. And so I think, thank you for giving some insight as to, you know, 
what that president does in Cole's house. Um, <laughs> and then um, the last couple of things I wanted to ask you before we head out is, um, do you still practice, you know, as a physician or do you ever intend to go back to clinical practice? And then just what is your biggest piece of advice for students that are, you know, anywhere along their journeys? So, so both of my daughters have gone into medicine, so I unofficially continue to be involved by talking with them. So they keep me updated on kind of what they're doing in interesting cases they see. I still have remained, retained my license uh, in Missouri. So I have a, a MD license in Missouri and I do that by doing 50 CME uh, every two years. So I've maintained that. Um, and I, you know, again, talk to my daughters about medicine. I read the New England Journal uh, on a regular basis. Um, JAMA to a lesser degree. And uh, so I try and keep up to some degree in my area. Um, I've had government involvement. So I chaired the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity for a number of years um, for the federal government and the White House. And so that keeps me kind of engaged in issues related to infectious disease. So I try and stay with it, but I don't actually see patients. And I actually stopped seeing patients when I was at WashU um, before I came to Stony Brook. I stopped seeing patients um, after I got that center grant. And when I became vice chancellor for research, I gave up my clinical things. I miss it. But it's fun to talk to my daughters, as I said, and, and one of them is doing infectious disease fellowship, another is an emergency medicine doctor. So they have interesting things to tell me all the time. And I try and guess, you know, the case that they're going to present to me and so on. So it's actually kind of fun. Um, the advice I'd have is that um, if, if, you know, there, there wasn't, my career, I think, grew in kind of an organic way. But I think the common theme was everything I was doing, I was trying to do the best I could at it. Um, so I never saw anything as a stepping stone to something else. I always saw everything I was doing as an important task for the moment that needed to get done. As I said, I always found them interesting. So when I was a house officer, that was really interesting. I wanted to do the best job I could on that. When I was a fellow, ID was really interesting. You know, I wanted to continue to do that well and learn that. Um, and when I became a faculty member, you know, I you know wanted to be a good faculty member at, at WashU and do be a contributor in a number of ways. And I think, so that to me was really helpful. I think if you show competence, you know, merit is not always rewarded, but I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a good way to reach your goals is to consider that you're going to do your best and impress people by the job you do as opposed to promotion and so on promoting yourself um, which is also helpful i don't want to say you shouldn't promote yourself because sometimes you don't get noticed if you do but it's good to have content behind it so that's what i'd say mm -hmm. well thank you um so much for uh, joining me today for this episode it was really awesome to be able to you know hear a little bit about your background and your career tra trajectory especially for people are interested in medicine and kind of seeing the, the different career pathways that you know physicians end up getting involved in so again um thank you so much i'll let you return to your day but it was a pleasure talking to you today uh the pleasure is all mine um you're great great at this i'm glad you're going into medicine but if you don't want to do that you certainly have another career as a broadcaster i can see that you're very good at what you do and very relaxed at this so so congratulations and um you know hope we're going to continue to see you uh, at msu as you pursue your career Thank you.